0: Good morning, church. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Awesome. All right. If you are uh, just joining us, we are in a series called The Story where we're going through a chronological view of this, the message of Scripture starting in Genesis and ultimately landing in the book of Revelation in April. And as we're going through this, um, the goal of this is that our people here at this church are not intimidated by Scripture in that they're intimidated because they, they feel like it's, it's too disconnected, too uh, difficult to understand, too out there, but actually recognize that through the Holy Spirit, we, we can actually grapple with the reality of what God is calling us to do in 2018 and not think that the, the Bible is just some archaic book. Um, and so if you've got your Bible, you could turn that in in that to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have your copy of the story, which has all the, the Scripture that we're going to be going through this year, Um, definitely uh, open that up to chapter 15. As you're turning there, um, my my, my wife and my two eldest kids are in Haiti uh, with the team, and God's doing some amazing things there, and so I've been like Mr. Mom this week and taking care of the younger two kids. It's not babysitting because I'm, a parent, I've been told. And so that, that's what I've been doing. And uh, as I've been taking care of the, the younger two kids, we've been having a, we've been having a blast together. Um, but Ryland was really bummed out that I was preaching this weekend. And he was like, Dad, what, you're preaching this weekend? Couldn't you have found anyone to preach for you? I mean, like, we, this is vacation time for us. I'm like, you're on break. I, I don't just get break. And so, like, I have to, this is part of my, my job. He said, well, what are you preaching on? And then all of a sudden I looked over at Cohen Cohen um, had realized that in his boredom without mom being in the house, that if you take uh, perfectly good hats and a Sharpie marker, you can make them awesome. And so he decided to take this perfectly good baseball cap and put Cohen, pretty much the only thing he knows how to write, Cohen across it. And he's like, Dad, Cohen Industries. I'm going to sell these. I'm like, you're going to sell rebranded baseball caps with Cohen across? He's like, yeah, Dad. And then he's like, wait, not just hats. And then he started to just grab things from around the house, things that I cared about, rebranding them with Cohen. He took, like, buttons that I really like and just put a C. Dad, it's our logo. We're going to sell these everywhere. I'm going to make a soda. I'm going to have, like, businesses, and, and there's like, going to be, like, stores that you can go to to get Cohen Industries products. And, Dad, if, if you want, you can work for me. I mean, it'll be awesome. It'll be so cool. And so he keeps on going on and on and on. And, and then Rylan's like, so Dad, what are, you, what are you preaching on this weekend? I'm like, well, we're, at, we're actually at a part in the Old Testament where we're talking about God's prophets. And he's like, Dad, when are we going to get out of the Old Testament? Like, it's so long. And I said, no, no, you, you can't understand the amazing things that God's doing in the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. And the prophets, do you, do you know what they did? Yeah, man, yeah. And then I look back to Cohen. Like, okay, here it is. It's kind of like this. Cohen Industries goes national. I mean, Cohen, you've got stores in Florida, California, Nevada, uh, New York. Cohen, people go in there, they, could get, they can get your soda, they can get your baseball caps, your rebranded buttons and t shirts that you've taken out of my closet. You, they'll get all that stuff, and then they could actually buy that. But all of a sudden, you find out that your Florida store is doing something. People have gotten word back to you that your Florida store, in addition to selling Cohen Industries products, is also selling. American Girl Products. And Cohen's like, oh, no. <laughs> like, how, how cool are you with that? He's like, no, no, not cool. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? I mean, they're all the way down to Florida. You're over here. What are you? He's like, well, I, I don't know, but I'm going to stop them. That, they can't, they're supposed to sell Cohen stuff. And I said, I know, I know. So what you probably would do is say, I'm going to send some of my best people down. There's some men and women that can go down to the different stores and say, hey, this is Cohen Industries. We sell Cohen products. You want American Girl products? Go to the American Girl store. But this is where we sell Cohen products. Look at the name on the outside of the building. Cohen Industries, not American Girl. Get this right or get out. Right? And I said, that's what the prophets were. The prophets were God's people who were, were, had the very words of God. Even things that they didn't completely understand themselves. The very words of God to communicate to the people. I says, listen, Israel, Judah... Look at the name that's on your heart. The name on your heart is the one true God, not God and Baal. This is not cool. God is not okay with this. He's not okay to be shared. This is something where he is exclusive, and God's messengers were his prophets. And and, as we, and, and they, they kind of got that, but I, I think that the thing that's even, even more than simply God's messengers, they truly were God's disruptors. If you, this, this has taken place in, in the industry and in business forever, but we've paid more attention in the past 15 to 20 years with disruptors. In fact, we think they're amazing. We, as, as consumers, think that disruptors are amazing because of what they provide for us. The people that they're disrupting, not so much. Forbes magazine um, defined disruptors in business as this disruption takes a left turn by literally uprooting and changing how we think, how we behave how we do business, how we learn and go about our day-to-day life. And disruptors have been doing this for a long time. Do you guys remember this? Remember seeing those? If you were born in the 90s, maybe not. But if you were born before the 90s, you recognize you probably had a gazillion of these. Um, and because there was this guy named Bill von Meister, who back in 83 wanted to figure out a way to make his Atari 2600 have the ability to get onto the internet, which didn't exist yet, but have this dial-up connection where you could download games and actually save your scores from the games that you were playing. He also had this crazy idea about downloading music, but no one believed him that it would work. So he ditched it, but he, could, he persisted. He continued on with this idea of, of some type of an internet connection. When he got into the 90s, all of a sudden, America Online was born with this idea that people could actually communicate electronically, that they could send mail electronically, that emails would be something that people would actually do. That the most efficient way, and, to, and they changed. I mean, uh, the, the, all of a sudden, uh, people started getting these. You probably had tons of these. People started using them for coasters. They had so many of these dumb, uh, the newest version of this disc around. But America Online disrupted the way that we send messages. That no longer was, was the most efficient, most quick way to communicate, to write a letter, get a stamp, and put it in the post office, and wait a couple of days for someone to read it. The most efficient way was to, and it's gone, instantly, instantly. It was both a blessing and a curse, because you don't have as much time to think about what you're saying. But it was still there. He disrupted the industry. A couple years back, Warby Parker disrupted the eyeglass industry. Because before, in order to get, to this day, many people, in order to get eyeglasses, you have to go to an, an ophthalmologist, to an eyeglass store to pick out frames. These guys would send a series of frames that you've selected out. And out of five, you would pick the one that you like the best. And then you would get your prescription, and they would give you those glasses, and the price was significantly cheaper than what a lot of people were charging for fashionable sunglasses and eyeglasses. And the cool thing that Warby Parker was doing was that a percentage of what you were paying in, your, in your, the money that you were spending went to provide eyeglasses for children in under-resourced countries who could not see otherwise. And so they absolutely disrupted the eyeglass industry. We just got through Christmas and a lot of you went shopping. Some of you went to brick and mortars, but a majority of us didn't. Where did we go to get our gifts? That's right, I didn't even have to say it. Amazon, you went to Amazon, because Amazon disrupted the fact that you don't have to go to a store to get it, you could actually just beep, 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 and all of a sudden you get it. And sometimes you get it like in two days. And it's brought so much joy to people that even just putting this on the screen makes you happy. You're hoping when you go home, that's there. And if it is, you're like, oh, I totally forgot I bought something else. You know, and it's like, it's there. And so, but, but Amazon, they disrupted the way that we buy stuff. Now, how happy are brick and mortar stores and managers of brick and mortar stores and employees of brick and mortar stores that Amazon exists? Not so happy. They've disrupted the industry. A lot of people, when they go on vacation, they want to find a place to stay, like a hotel or resort. But there's been a disruptor in the hotel and resort industry. Who is it? Airbnb. This idea was pitched and was never thought that it was going to fly because who in the world in their right mind would go into somebody's house that they don't know and stay there? And all of a sudden, Airbnb comes around and they actually like develop it out and people are like, this is the way to go. If you're going to go up to Chicago or anywhere else that's a city, and you want to uh, to get like to get from here to there, you don't have your car, um, and you don't use a taxi. What do you do? <laughs> you walk. <laughs> Uber. Let me just tell you, I was up in the city, walking, not an option, <laughs> when it's like negative 10. Uber. Uber is something that is a disruption to the taxi industry. I, I, just, I just used this. I, was, I took the boys up um, on my day off into the city, and we, we were getting around, and I'm like, and it, seriously, it was frigid. Cohen, I mean, Cohen looked like Audrey from Christmas Vacation. His eyes were frozen. And so like I'm like, got to get an Uber. And so we're sitting in a restaurant, and I beep, beep, beep I tell him where I want to go, and all of a sudden, it says, Davis is on his way. He's two minutes away. Davis. <laughs> Davis is. And all of a sudden, I see a map with Davis's car coming to me. I'm like, he's coming. <laughs> Davis is. And all of a sudden, whoop, it tells you what kind of car Davis is driving, what his rating is, how many people he's given rides to. And all of a sudden, I look out, I go over to and I open the door, and I say, Davis? And he says, Errol? Like, Davis! And we sit down, and he takes me where I need to go. How happy is the taxi industry about Uber. Not at all, why? They've disrupted it. But here's the thing, even the disruptors get disrupted. Who's disrupted Uber's industry? (laughs) Exactly, Lyft. Lyft has come in and said, you know what? We got the same technology, but we give a percentage to charity, because we got hearts, (laughs) and we want your money. This is the thing. Disruptors are game changers, they're world changers. And whether or not you you have already used one of these these types of uh, pieces of technology or resources, they have impacted you even if you don't know. They have disrupted the way things were and altered reality as we know it. Which brings us back to the prophets. If you take the same Forbes magazine definition, we see that in place. Prophets were disruptors who who caused disruption, which took a left turn by literally uprooting and changing how people thought, behaved, did business, learned, and went about their day-to-day lives. And they did this in spades. We talked about when the kingdom got divided. We talked about this last week, how messed up both Judah and Israel were from time to time. Israel far more evil, far more messed up than Judah. But God sent his messengers to let them know, hey, this is, we're, I'm, this is a disruption. I'm going to disrupt this. Again, look at the name on the store. We, we are God's people. We can't be re- reflecting something that is so absolutely diametrically opposed to who God is. These prophets were disruptors. And they were protesters. And they did crazy things like Ezekiel. Ezekiel laid on his back for 430 days, right, in, in, in plain daylight. Where people are like, dude, why are, what is your deal? He laid on his back for 430 days so that people would ask, so that he could tell them, "This is what God says: You have been in sin for 430 years." Um, the prophet Isaiah walked around and preached around Jerusalem, nude, naked, and barefoot, which was—I mean, people had to be like, "Okay, seriously? There's children around. What are you doing? You're not a man of God. You're walking around." I'm—I'm. I'm, by the way, I will never do that. Okay, just giving you a fair warning. Isaiah, but Isaiah did because God called him to do it. Why? So people would say dude, what's the deal? Get some clothes on. Why are you preaching naked? Why are you walking around barefoot? This is like, this is Israel. This is like desert region. Judah, why are you doing this? He did, he communicated that this is the deal. You have put all of your faith in Egypt, not God. Assyria is going to come down and take out Egypt, and you will be just as vulnerable, just as vulnerable just as vulnerable as I am right now walking around naked. In fact, when the Assyrians ultimately take you over, do you know what the Assyrians do with their captive slaves when they're marching them back to their home country? They march them back there naked. So take a good look. This is your future. They were disruptors. Now, if they were disruptors, what were they disrupting? A couple things. The first thing they were disrupting was the notion that God doesn't care that God was super cool. He was totally fine with having, like, I, I believe in God. I'm good with God. And I just, I, I put my faith in Baal too and, and the government. And I, I, the, it's, what's the big, no one gets hurt. I mean, seriously, if I've got a plethora of gods that I worship, if I've got a plethora of things that I put my faith in, seriously, that's, how, that's I'm just diversifying my portfolio. All roads lead to God anyway, so what's the big deal? So God comes in and causes Hosea to disrupt that. And he does it through his family, If this was Hosea's minivan, this would be the back of his minivan. First off, you start off with Hosea. He was a righteous guy. He was um, a righteous prophet of God to the northern kingdom. Um, Good, good guy, single man, uh, righteous and single, no e harmony. and, And so God sets him up with a date and a wife in Gomer. And so he's married to Gomer, and they actually have a couple of kids. You got Jezreel, you got Lo Ruama, and you got Lo Ami. These kids, I mean, what a beautiful family. God is saying, I want to disrupt the notion that you think I don't care. That it's okay for me to just, to, to, for you to have me as God and all these other gods too. So I'm going to send Hosea to send that message. Hosea, righteous guy, righteous prophet. That's his profession. What's Gomer's profession? Prostitute. Whoa. <laughs> God could have done a better job on setting him up, right? I mean, seriously, this is, his reputation's on the line. And God says, you're so righteous, I'm gonna have you marry a prostitute. And he does. And the worst thing is that her prostitution doesn't stop on their wedding day. At night, she's bailing out and she's running out into the street doing exactly what she did before they got married. And it's, everybody knows about it. Even people that are, are, are employing her know about it and spreading the word. That's Gomer. Now Jezreel, we believe from, from the, how the scripture is written in Hosea chapter 1 that Jezreel is actually their kid. But God is the one who tells Hosea how to name his kids. Jezreel sounds like a really, really cool name. And it's a beautiful valley in Israel. It really is. It's gorgeous, lush. But it's, it's, a, it's a valley full of conflict and co- like contradiction. It's both beautiful and it's also the history ground of injustice pagan idolatry took place there bloodshed was uh, people say that that the the valley of jezreel is green because it's watered with the blood of the soldiers it's absolutely un, this, these terrible calamities and tragedies took place in this valley and god is saying this that's just like how it is with us you're married to a prostitute you're you're i'm calling you to be faithful to her because i'm faithful to the prostitute wife i have which is israel Jezreel, just like this, you're, you're be- Israel, you're both beautiful and conflict because there's so much injustice within you. And then they got Loruama. We're pretty sure Loruama was not Hosea's. And, and so Loruama, you know what her name means? It's a pretty name. But you know what the name means? I've got zero patience for you. I'm done. Now, some of you probably should have named your kids that. No more patience. <laughs> not for you. Some of us should have been named that. I've got no more patience for you. But God wants Hosea to name his daughter, his first daughter, Ruama, because he said, that's how I feel with you. I've been patient forever and ever and ever, and you keep trying my patience. And then they have a little boy. They don't. Gomer does, because this is, again, someone who's probably the product of prostitution, this child. And Ami is, again, a pretty name, until you realize that Ami means not mine lo ami means not my people. This is not, and, and who's this baby? Oh, well, this is my baby. Uh, it's the, my baby, not my kid. Not my kid. But you probably already knew about that. lo ami, and so with each one of these kids, the back of the minivan for Hosea's family was a consistent recognition of where Israel was in contrast to where God had called them to be. And so God, when you get into Hosea, at the end of Hosea 1, beginning of Hosea 2, you see God just saying, okay, let's take a sidestep from this symbol, this picture of what I'm painting in this family, and say how it is between us. Israel, you have gone after your lovers, and I'm done with that. I'm so done with that. And so I'm going to take all the things that you're you're getting pleasure out of, whether it's your vineyards or it's your gods, I'm going to show you how, I'm going to strip away the very joy that you get from them, because each of these things are dead ends And they're going to lead to your death. And they're going to lead to your disappointment. And so I'm going to bring you out in the wilderness that you see how absolutely disappointing and dead-ended each of these are. I care that much for you. And then as we get into Hosea, the rest of Hosea chapter 2, he says, therefore, I am now, though, going to allure her. Talking about his bride, Israel. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I'm going to give her back her vineyards. And we'll make the valley of Acor, which means trouble, the valley of Acre, a door of hope. There she will respond as the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. Like I mean, listen to God. It's like, "Don't you remember when I brought you out of Egypt? All of your hope was in me at that point. You loved me back. there, back when our relationship was fresh and new." It could be like that again. In that day, declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And I will show my love to the one called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, You are my God. Basically, God goes through each one of the children's names and says, I'm going to undo the curse of that because I'm going to say, even though you are not my people, I'm going to make you my people. By the time we get into Hosea 3, we go back to Hosea and Gomer, uh, chapter 3, we go back to Hosea and Gomer's story, and you have Hosea going throughout the marketplace looking for his wife. Because again, she's gone. Door to door, have you seen my wife? Trying to figure out the people who she's who have employed her, and asking these men, have you seen my wife? Have you seen my wife? Eventually, you see that the prophet, this righteous prophet, again, surrenders not only his finances, but his reputation as he buys his own wife out of the sex trafficking, sex trade. And he says, now, I'm gonna be faithful to you. I'm gonna be your husband. I'm gonna continue being your husband. And you're gonna be faithful to me. And we're gonna be back. In spite of everything that's happened, we're gonna start fresh, anew. The biblical word um, for that, for buying back, is redemption. And the thing that Hosea and all the prophets were doing, they were setting the table for the fact that God himself was going to do more than sacrifice his finances or his reputation to buy back his bride from being enslaved to sin. This is where it comes back to us. The, The concept of Hosea disrupting the notion that God doesn't care and the other prophets doing the same is this, to a people that God didn't care to be shared, like I'm just one of many, he wanted to help them to, to elevate their understanding of how God sees this, to say, no, this is not just I'm like an app on your phone where I'm just one of many. This is exclusive. If you treated any relationship like, I, you're only good to me when you're useful to me, but then after that, I, just, I can kind of keep you at arm's distance. How exploitative is that relationship? How manipulative is that? I only care about you when you're doing something good for me, but, but let's be honest, I can bail at any point because I can have as many other lovers as I want. It's all good. God is saying, that would cause rage in anyone. And that causes rage in me. I care that much. Uh, in 2005, uh, two individuals, Smith and Denton, did a, a study of American religiosity, specifically with American youth, but it, was, it, was, it spoke volumes of how we are as a country. And even though if you think of America as a Christian country, this study really just exploded that notion because it said that we, may, we skew towards Christian or Christian-ish, but the truth is that we're honestly a little bit more, better described as being, having moralistic therapeutic deism as our religion of choice, Moralistic, because it's kind of like you need to be a good person. Therapeutic, it helps me feel good about myself. And deism, God exists, I'm sure, but he just, I mean, I don't really need to be connected to him. And the tenets of of this faith is is incredibly American in, in its nature. Number one, God exists, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. No problem there. Two, God wants people to be good, Nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions three the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem or help you pass a test five Good people go to heaven when they die Now this might sound pretty like what's wrong with that? That's kind of what I believe What's wrong with that is that, that that's in a very American religion. It's just not Christian. It's not from the Bible. Good people don't go to heaven when they die. Sinful people destined for hell go to heaven when they die if they have Jesus who's given them his righteousness. The goal of life isn't happy. If your goal in life is to be happy and you expect God to give that to you, your entire life is going to be disappointment. If happiness is your goal, you will spend your life disappointed. If following God is your goal, you will be happy. Happiness will be thrown in. But when life is tragic, your life is still on course. Why? Because he is your goal, not happiness. If happiness is your goal, your marriage will grow disappointing and cold. Your job will seem worse than it is, and your friendships will seem fake. However, if following God as the one true God above you, if that is your goal, he will throw in happiness on the side. To a people who thought that God doesn't need to us, God, that God's cool to being shared. As one of many, he reminds us this is a relationship. And the thing is that just as much as this was a defibrillator to help people understand that this, this is real, this is a relationship, and our goal needs to be real with God, that actually stepped into the next notion that was disrupted, the notion that it's cool for us not to care. God is communicating through the prophets, not only is this a real thing, but if this is a real thing between you and me, Real with God leads to ultimately being real with in the world. That 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 you are a beacon, that there's a difference because of you, that when the world sees you, they're not gonna see perfect people, they're not gonna see people who've got their whole act together, but they're gonna see a marked difference because of me. That that through what I'm doing inside of you, it's going to impact others. And some people are like, hold on, you just wanted me to be religious and get make sure that you're the number one. I go to the religious festivals, I make the sacrifices, I'm like crazy religious. Yeah, but you treat people that are around you that don't help you or don't impact your life like trash. So what, everybody does that. I'm nice to people who are nice to me. I respect people who respect me. People that don't, or people that don't help me or my family, I don't care about. What's the big deal? Everyone does that. And God says, that's exactly the point. Because this is real, it has to lead to a real difference in how I see those folks. The prophet Amos um, to the north communicated the words of God to the people in this. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being that you're of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. Okay, pause here. All of that stuff were things that God called his people to do. In worship, this is how you are to to perform. This is is what takes place in in our sacrificial system. This is what takes place in our law. And he's saying, you doing that makes me hate it. Not because of the things that you're doing, but the fact that you're doing that thinking this is all that matters. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those words, justice and righteousness, are key. God's call on us is to, in light of this, because of this, this has to be markedly different. And that's called justice. I want you to see something that kind of puts that together in a really, really great way.
1: Take a look at this video. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate's.
2: And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others.
1: Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them.
2: And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, Doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. like. Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah?
1: Rescue the disadvantaged, and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner
2: free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God.
1: So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God.
2: Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up, as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But
1: they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere.
2: Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest
1: followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways.
2: Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others.
1: This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or
2: easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems this is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself it's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah God has told you humans what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God so the reality we
0: see from the prophets is that as followers of God, and specifically as, as followers of Jesus, in his, from what he's accomplished for us, is to recognize that that necessarily leads to us considering others' needs. Um, th- those words of Amos, let, the just, let justice roll down like water, that was used by Martin Luther King and it's actually chiseled into the monument to him in Washington. Uh, the, this, this, this reality is something that we take to heart significantly, but it's so easily to be insulated from other people's issues and to think that the only thing that matters is us, our family, our tribe, whatever. And forget the fact that God has called us to the marginalized. Um, one person put it this way, the test of justice in a nation is how the weakest are treated. So, for us Christians, that goes for, for us, that goes for the poor, the unrepresented, the foreigner, the unborn, the voiceless. As Christians, we cannot allow ourselves to be insulated, insulated from the needs of others. Disrupted the notion that God doesn't care, disrupted the notion that it's cool not to care. And finally, the prophets disrupt the notion that God is absent. Like And so we see this amazing, and if you grew up in church, you know this account. This is where we're getting to First um, Kings chapter 18, and uh, actually we're going to be on page 204 of, of the story uh, copy. But this is with Elijah having the contest between him and the Baals. Elijah is, is communicating, listen, there's one true God, and like, well, we can't see him. And we, we worship Baal. We can see the idol of Baal. Like, and so Elijah's like, okay, let's bring it on. You take a bull, chop it up into pieces, and ask Baal to bring fire upon it. I'll take a bull, chop it up into pieces, and ask God to ignite that. No one lights a match. No one brings their Bic lighter. It's just going to be your God versus our God. And whoever at the end of the day has fire wins and the prophets of Baal who are 450 by the way. It's one prophet versus 450 go to town. They set up the idol, uh, they set up the the, the bowl, and the, the altar and everything else. And then this happens. This is like the second paragraph from the bottom on page 204. They called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. "Baal, answer us," they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made because dancing always helps. It's not in the Bible, but it's true. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout. Now if you've ever wondered if sarcasm is a biblical trait, listen to Elijah. Shout louder. Maybe I mean surely he is a god, perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. In the pagan world, if your god or goddess did not listen to you, you got their attention by shedding your own blood because at least they'll know that you've got skin in the game. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to his people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And it goes on from there. Where do we see, as we've been going through the story, going through the Old Testament, where did we, remember this, where where did we see before where 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel were gathered together? Do you remember? It was Joshua, once he gets the the God's chosen people out of the wandering wilderness and they're into, they cross the Jordan and they're about to go into the promised land and they set those up. They took the stones from the bottom of the Jordan River because he wanted people to see God did something here. And Elijah's right here, fast forward all these years now, Elijah's like, okay, just like Joshua took 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes that God promised that he was going to work through. And he made a monument that God did something there. God's going to do something here today. And so he gets the bowl on there. He sets it up. He digs a trench and he tells him to douse it with water. More and more water. So much that it's overflowing with water. So the thing is like so not conducive for lighting. And then he prays to God and fire comes from the sky and lights it up licks up even the water in the trenches, and people fall to their knees and declare, he is God. And I know what you're thinking. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if God did that today? Like I just pray and all this visible, like I'm in my cafeteria in high school and I'm praying, dear God, just my friends don't believe in you. Please just light the cafeteria on fire and... (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Here's the amazing thing. Miracles are great. And I believe that God still does miracles. I really do. But miracles come and go. Fire was not the last thing God sent down to prove his point or prove his case. He didn't send fire down. He sent his son. He sent Jesus. It was Jesus' blood that got the Heavenly Father's attention, Jesus was the sacrifice that impacted us 2,000 years later. We are still reeling with the implications of him. And when he, after he died on the cross and he rose again, he said, I am going to give you someone just like me who will be your counselor, who will be with you wherever you go. And that person was the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit is the one who's with us that when we have fractured relationships with the world around us, convicts us and brings us back to God's perspective. The Holy Spirit is the one who speaks the very words of Scripture into our heart to remind us who God is that we can come back and repent and restore our relationship with Him. You're looking for a prophet? God's given you Himself to be the one who speaks the words of Scripture right back into your heart to bring you right back to Him. God is not absent. And if you're thinking, you come to the end of that story and you're like, man, that sounds great, but seriously, I have, my world is far more complicated. Elijah doesn't come away from that victory, like, you know, doing victory laps and his, his whole life is just epic. He falls into depression. Can you relate to that? He falls into depression and he's fearing for his life. He feels radically insecure. He knows that he's a wanted man because, because for the whole thing had, had took place and he goes off and he runs away. And he gets into a cave and, he, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, God meets him there and he hears the words of the Lord to him, which says, What are you doing here, Elijah? He's like, Listen, I have spoken up for you. I am the last of the, they've killed all the prophets. I'm the last one. And I've spoken for you, and now my life is in jeopardy too. And God says, Go out of the cave. My presence is about to pass by. And then all of a sudden, this massive windstorm comes through, and it's like shattering rocks all around him, and he thinks that it must be God. But the author lets us know and informs him that God is not in the windstorm. And then there's this huge earthquake, and got, this has got to be God doing this. And, it, and the author of 1 Kings reminds us, God was not in the earthquake. And then this fire, like, I mean, this sounds like like California weather, like it, all over, this fire scorches the whole land. And all of a sudden, like, God must be in that. But God wasn't in the fire. And then this gentle breeze, this whisper just goes by. And that's when he puts the cloak over his face because he knows that he's experienced the calm presence of God ministering to him in that moment. And he goes back in the cave and God reiterates the same question he asked before. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? That was a turning point in his life because he goes from there to training up the rest of the prophets who would succeed him and continue ministering to Israel after he was taken away by God? Here's my question for you. Is God disrupting your life? Are you allowing him to disrupt you? Are you insulating yourself from his disruption? Because if you are, allow him to speak into you. What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Eric? What are you doing here, Katie? What are you doing here, Josh? Sarah, what are you doing here? Because if you feel so alone in the midst of this tragedy, if you feel so alone in the midst of this doubt and this confusion, surrender your heart to God who is here, who is real, who really cares and really cares about your decisions in your life. This could be the turning point where you watch God work in and through you in the next chapter in significant ways. Amen? going to pray for that for you because i know that i don't know your story and we're also going to pray for this morning's offering but i want it during our prayer time i want you to seriously consider what is it that god needs to disrupt within your heart this morning let's pray lord jesus it's very easy for us to hold on to you as god as one of many Or even though if we don't feel that we're super pluralistic religiously, we put our faith in our skills, in our retirement, in our job, in our relationship, first and foremost in our life above you. Lord, help us find what true security, true peace is by surrendering to you. Lord, I pray that you help and convict us To see that not just be a faith statement, but a faith statement that leads to a life change, transformation that impacts the way that we treat even those who don't matter to us. That that will stem from your heart because we're your people. Lord, as we take this morning's offering, I pray that God that you use it to impact those in our community who are poor, who are impoverished physically and monetarily, as well as spiritually. And God, that it'll, it'll help not just our community, but the globe and areas of this world that are not only starving for resources, God, but starving for your word. That your word will be preached to them. And that, God, we will see impact and wholeness not coming from people movements, but from your movement. And we'll give you the thanks and the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.